We're going to begin into a new series of studies in the Bible. Um, this morning, uh, we closed out our Is It Okay for a Christian 2 dot 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 series, which was all about um, Christian ethics, how we are to live as Christians, not because we are under law, but rather because we're motivated by the love of Christ, wanting to become like him. And, uh, and we, we covered this morning some uh, outstanding queries and questions. Um, if you weren't here because you're out and about, um, as we often say, our sermons are recorded and there's a podcast available um, so you can google that and catch up um, coming next Sunday morning we'll be starting into a sermon series called at the movies at the movies I was I was telling somebody before my sermon prep this week is actually going to the cinema does anybody want my job uh, it's all right isn't it sometimes uh, but yeah we are going to be actually over the next few weeks in the mornings drawing out some spiritual themes from some of the, the popular movies at the moment. Um, it's going to be a great sermon series for you to invite people along to uh, because they might very well find it difficult to engage with uh, the Christian message or the Bible in, in some of our traditional manner. But uh, to, to get them to come along to, the, to church. And, and next Sunday morning, we're going to be talking about Avengers Endgame. Um, uh, I, I was talking about that before, and some of the young people got very, very excited. When I told them what tonight's topic was, they did not get that excited. And uh, I had to correct them in, in love and in the Lord. But um, no. Uh, so next Sunday morning, Avengers Endgame. I, I know there are all sorts of... Uh, there's, what, what, what is it that's coming up after that? It's Disney, some... Toy Story, the latest one. That's coming up, if you like that kind of thing. Um, don't put in your requests. I'll pick the movies, thank you. Um, <laughs> I'm only kidding. Um, but that's going to be coming up in the Sunday mornings. Sunday evenings, um, we've been talking about the, uh, the, the, the wonder-working power of our God, ushering in his kingdom, bringing healing and hope to all. And you know, we, we don't want to lose sight of that. But over coming weeks, we're actually going to turn our attention to a topic that is well, it's intriguing, it's interesting, fascinating, captivating for many Christians, um, but also confusing uh, and sometimes um, distracting um, for some Christians. And we want to see these things rightly. So over coming weeks, we're going to be talking under the title of Coming Soon, we're going to be talking about the return of Jesus Christ. I don't know whether you know, but Jesus Christ came into our world once upon a time. Did you know that? And Jesus Christ came into our world. And why did he say he came? He said, I have come to seek and to save the lost. Jesus comes as a good shepherd trying to find, not just trying, doing, finding lost sheep. Finding we who have gone astray. And he comes lovingly, tenderly, rescues, redeems, makes new. This is all that Jesus has done. But we know here we live in a world that is aching and groaning. And I want to suggest to you it's aching and groaning with the longing for the return of Jesus Christ. He is coming again. In a room decorated for a funeral in Albania, a missionary to Albania delivered a powerful Good Friday sermon on the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. Afterwards, he invited everyone to come back on Sunday to observe what they called the third day ritual. In Albanian culture, friends return three days after a funeral to sit with the family, to drink bitter coffee, and to remember the one who has died. More than 300 people filled the room that Easter Sunday. And the missionary preached about the 
not quite empty tomb. Observing that Christ's empty grave clothes still bore his shape, but the napkin which had been wrapped around his head was placed away from the other grave clothes folded. To the missionaries' congregation in Albania, that minor detail wasn't so minor. It held great meaning and purpose. You see, in Albania, when a person finishes a meal and prepares to leave the table, they would crumple up their napkin and drop it down if they're saying that they're finished. But if he leaves his napkin folded, it is a sign that he plans to come back. The application was obvious to these Albanians. If Jesus folded his napkin in the grave, he's coming back. I think that's rather beautiful, isn't it? And you know, the application may have been obvious to them and excited some faith and, uh, and some expectation within them. I want to suggest to us, if we can't read the signs, if we don't have a clear idea of where we're heading or having a clear vision or a clear sense of the lay of the land and central characters, it'll be hugely damaging to our ability to understand what is going on around us, to our ability to, to actually travel this journey as we wait on and expect the return of Jesus Christ. Don't know whether you've noticed, but sometimes it's not easy to live in the here and now. As a believer, as a follower of Jesus Christ, what did Jesus say? In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. What do we know from when Jesus returned in glory to his Father? That this same Jesus will return in like manner. We have hope. We have an overcoming saviour. We have one who is with us. You know, we've just celebrated Pentecost, haven't we? We know that the Spirit of God himself is present within his church and within the life of every believer in these last days. We'll talk about that in a minute. God has poured out his Spirit on all flesh. It ain't always easy. And when we talk about the return of Jesus, when we consider what these days might look like and how unfolding days ahead might look like, this is so helpful to us to navigate our journey in Christ Jesus. We need to have a clear idea of what it is we're doing and what it is we're looking at. Our kids, their, their birthdays are quite close together. So this summer, we decided, because they're little and we can get away with it, we'll just do one party for both of them. Is that mean? I don't know whether it's practical or me. I don't know. It's smart. Thank you. I'll go with that. Um, it's, it's a smart thinking. Um, Nora, of course, it's her first birthday. She'll have absolutely no idea what's happening. Um, but you have to try a little bit harder as they get a bit bigger. That's what I'm told. So um, Judah's going to have a bouncy castle. Yes. I say Judah's going to have a bouncy castle. Erin and I are going to have a bouncy castle. Um, you know that's the truth. Um, but uh, we, we were wandering through Aldi the other day, as you do. And you know those center aisles? Those wonderful places in Aldi? Danger zone. Dates, they clear. Uh, we were driving the cart down the center aisles and they knew, they obviously had been like scanning our conversations and so there were piñatas in the center. You know piñatas? Those things that you stuff with treats and sweets and then you whack them with a stick because you want to encourage violence amongst the under fives. And uh, you whack it with a stick until it disgorges all of its goodies. And so we got one of these. And, and our one, we were going to go for the rainbow one, uh, but then we read the sign and it said there were llama ones. Oh my, who doesn't want a llama to hit? And, uh, and so we put the rainbow, not a real llama, and we put, the, we put the rainbow back and we went rooting through the boxes until we found this multicolored llama. Um, Judah doesn't really know what a llama is, 
So when we told him that we got a llama and, it, and he's going to have his friends together and going to hit it and sweeties are going to come out, you could tell that things were going in, but we couldn't quite tell what was happening once the things had gone in. And Erin's uh, putting him to bed that night and, uh, and he's getting quite sleepy. He's not all together with it anymore. But he's drifting off into the land of Nod. But you could just tell he was imagining the wonders of the party to come. And so Erin told me later on, she heard him and he was clearly kind of almost dreaming and he was saying in his sleep, he was saying to his friends, do you want to come to my party and hit, and hit my lamb? And, uh, <laughs> and she came downstairs and told me this and we just fell apart laughing that he might go to nursery and tell his friends that he hits a lamb at home. Um, we're going to get reported to the RSPCA, aren't we? Uh, he got some sense of, of the wonder and the magic of what was coming up, but he didn't quite know what was happening. That's like us. We've got some sense, some glimmer of the kingdom of God, of the glory of his coming. We've got some sense as to how these last days might outplay and what might be our role in in being people of the gospel and of grace in these days. But we don't quite know the difference between a llama and a lamb very often. And we're not quite sure what we should hit and what not. We need a good sense of what is going on. We need, when we're seeking the wisdom of God, the truth of this wonderful book, we need some illumination. I was thinking about this and I was thinking, you know, when we're seeking illumination in our understanding of the scriptures and of of the things that God has, has spoken about the here and now, but he's prophesied, spoken about the future to come, wouldn't it be good for illumination to go to the light of the world? Does that seem to make sense to anybody? Lucy, there's a picture right there. Would you put it up for me? This picture, I don't know whether you've ever come across it, it's by a a pre-Raphaelite painter called William Holman Hunt. One of his great works is in the Lady Lever Art Gallery just down the road. It's called The Scapegoat. It's a biblical um, picture that's right there. Go and have a look at it. It's, it's, It's vivid and dramatic. It's fantastic. But this one is called The Light of the World. Has anybody got a clue as to who it might be? Yeah, the answer's always Jesus. You're in church. Um, the answer's always Jesus. But it is, it's a picture of Jesus. And there he is, holding this light in this otherwise gloomy scene. And he's there, standing outside a door, and he is knocking. And the image that's actually being demonstrated here in art comes directly from the Scriptures, from Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20. If you've got a Bible with you, you might want to head to Revelation anyway. We're going to hang out there a little bit tonight, as well as a few other places in the New Testament. And there are, there are Bibles under chairs as well. But in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, these are, the, these are the words of Jesus. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him. And eat with him and he with me. Here I stand at the door and knock. And Jesus here is speaking. And you know, we do well to recognize that Jesus here, he's not speaking to people who don't know him. But he's speaking to people that he knows. If you were to go back one verse, you would find that Jesus says, those whom I love. He talks about his correction, his discipline. And then he talks about standing at these doors and knocking. Can we have that picture up again, please, Lucy? Um, 
on this picture, um, it was commented to the artist that it was a brilliant painting, uh, but he got one thing wrong. That there's the door, but he failed to put a door handle or a doorknob on the door. To which I'm reliably informed that the artist replied, no, that's not a mistake. He says, knowing what the scriptures say about if anyone hears my voice and invites me in, he says, the door handle is on the inside. Now Christians, when we start to unpack the wisdom of God about the coming of Jesus Christ into our world again, what we firstly want to be doing is ensuring that we're welcoming God into our hearts. Now I want to suggest to you, this is not a one-time thing. I want to suggest to you that we need to be people who are welcoming Jesus always. It's all too possible, whether it be within compartments of our life or of our heart, to close them off, handle on the inside Jesus about knocking, and yet we fail to heed his call. Maybe even in seasons we might close off much of our life, all of our life, to the tender mercies of our God. Let it not be so. Let it not be so. Tonight, our subject is that it is all about Jesus. We need him. We need him to illuminate our way and our walk. We need him to illuminate sometimes scripture that it might seem so complicated or confusing sometimes. We need him to illuminate our lives when things seem dark or disturbing. People often say, don't they, that the darkest part of the night is right before the dawn. You know, we're heading towards midsummer, aren't we? It seems like the night never gets dark. But just before dawn, darkest still. Much the same could be true of the coming of Jesus Christ, that when he comes, the bright, shining one, there will be no more night, no more darkness. And yet, in the here and now, oftentimes it seems that the darkness is... It's so gloomy, so impassable. We need him to illuminate us, our lives, our world. My prayer for us is that we would be people who pray, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. And not just as some perhaps far off thing, but but come now please. Uh, Let me be perceptive to your call, to the, the knocking upon my heart, Jesus, that I might welcome you in. We've said it already. We'll say it again. It's all about Jesus. Much of our study over the weeks to come is going to be in the book of Revelation. And now for some of you, you'll think that's the most exciting thing you've ever heard. For some of you, you'll think that's the most scary and strange thing you've ever heard. And you are all right. Um, It is just this most wondrous book, unlike pretty much anything else in the scriptures. Although it has some uh, near cousins, perhaps in the Old Testament. But this book... Rich as it is in imagery, rich as it is in layers of meaning, rich as it is in prophecy about what is to come. I want to suggest to you, it is still all about Jesus. In our house, we, um, we got for Judah an Easter present. We got him a, this thing, it's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. 
Don't worry, we did get him chocolate as well. We're not terrible parents, but um, we got him this thing that will mean a lot more in the long run. And this Jesus Storybook Bible, it's got this little tagline and it says, every page speaks or sings his name or something like that. And essentially, they've drawn out all of these stories, all of the big hitters, you know, creation and, and Noah and the ark and David and Goliath, all these fantastic stories. But every single one of them, they point it towards Jesus. And they show us how Jesus is the true and better Noah or the true and better David or the, you know, the true and better Isaac or whatever it might be. And honestly, sometimes we've been reading these stories and Erin and I, we're, we're getting quite emotional with the truth of this. That Literally, the Bible, we're being preached to by our, our lad's storybook Bible. The whole thing speaks of Jesus. You know, when we come to the book of Revelation, it is no different. Can I begin at the beginning or very near it with you? And in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9, the one who receives these wonderful visions and, and, and words and truths, I, John, the disciple, the beloved one, the apostle, your brother and partner in the tribulation and in the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God, and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. And in verse 20, Jesus goes on to describe what all of those sevens are, those lampstands and all those kinds of things. And you know, right at the beginning of this book, we could very easily start to get into those images and those numbers and the meaning of these things. It would be so tempting to do so, and I think Jesus knows our hearts must have seen something in John's quizzical face and thought, he's a bit confused about this, let's explain it. Can I urge you ever so much to be as overcome, captivated, overwhelmed, amazed as John was by the person of Jesus? I don't know, maybe you've read that description before. It's hard to do justice to the wonder that John must have seen in words, but he tried, didn't he? And he tried and described with language that's so vivid, Jesus. 
And I turned and I saw one like a son of man. But then he goes on to describe truly like no one else I've ever seen. So much so that I fell to the floor as if dead. Have you seen Jesus? Do you want to see Jesus? I don't know to how many it might be granted to see visions of our Savior in such a way. But one day we will all see him like this. The Bible says we will see him as he is. And it'll change everything. I wonder, this evening, can we start to get into that mold? Can we get in practice for this? Can we long for, pray for, earnestly desire that we would see Jesus? So we unpack this book. There are going to be so many intriguing things. If you've ever even glanced at the book of Revelation, you know there are about 400 interesting things on every page. Jesus is more than that. He's the hope of it all. He's the one that unlocks it all shepherds it all, sustains it all. He is the one for whom everything happens in the way that it happens. He is the most powerful one. He is the Lord of all and above all. He will transcend all and yet he will come to us in and through it all. It is all about Jesus. And John sets the scene here that it is all about Jesus, but we recognize that it is not just a one-time thing. If you were to go right there to the very end of the book, having read of a, a marriage supper between the people of God, his church, and Jesus himself, and of how everything is made new, revolving around the presence of God himself, then right there at the end, in Revelation 22 and verse 13, you'll find Jesus again. Verse 12 and 13, behold, I am coming soon. And there he says, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. You want to know the meaning of these things? You want to find your way through these things? Can you cultivate a place within your life to gaze upon the beauty of your Savior? You ensure that you are giving all of the time and the space that you possibly can to say, Jesus, I love you. I want to know you, center my life upon you. Please God, reveal your glory in my life, in my time, in this place. We need Jesus. You know, this is a, a constant, consistent refrain of the Bible. In Matthew chapter five and verse eight, Jesus reminds us of this truth. He says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. This is like the, the, the ultimate reward, the ultimate blessed state that we might see God. But here, Jesus is tapping into something that, that all of the scriptures and all of the ancients yearned for and longed for. Psalm 42 verse 2, when shall I come and behold the face of God? Now, I wonder sometimes, what is it that we're longing for? Are we longing for Jesus above it all? What is it that we are most desperate for? Are we desperate for the things of the, the prophetic in the scriptures to be fulfilled for their own sake? Or so that we might see Jesus? 
What is it that we want in our lives in the day to day? What is it that we want for tomorrow, this week, these weeks, this month? What is it that you'll be pursuing over the summertime? Do you long for Jesus? We said that here in Revelation chapter 1, John, he's seen the, the revealed glory of his Savior in a way that he'd never seen before. And it struck him as though dead. He couldn't even hold his feet anymore. He fell flat down and had to be raised up by uh, the grace of his Savior. But this same John, you know, he'd found himself once upon a time with James, his brother, and Peter, taken by Jesus up a mountain. And there they were, aside and apart from everybody else. And something really remarkable started to happen. And, and they started to see Jesus reveal in something of his glory. And there were two alongside, Moses, Elijah, and, and God speaking his blessing and his love upon his son in their presence. And they were dumbstruck then. Well, they were mostly dumbstruck. Peter's never entirely dumbstruck, is he, in the Bible? He's always got a little something that he can say. And so he starts yammering on about tents. You know, I, I'm not entirely sure why. Camping can be fun, but I'm not entirely sure what that had to do with anything. But they start to see just a bit of the glory of Jesus Christ. But you know, as that episode in the life of Jesus, which we call the transfiguration, as it drew to a close, in Matthew chapter 17 and verse 8, it says, as everything started to just come back together, it says, when these three, when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. It is just entirely and utterly and completely about Jesus. Everything is about Jesus. The entirety of your faith is Jesus. Your life makes sense when it revolves around Jesus. It's suffused with passion for Jesus. When your mind is full of Jesus, when your mouth is full of the words of Jesus, when your heart is full of the love of Jesus, compelling you into the ways of Jesus in this world, it is Jesus, it is Jesus, it is Jesus. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw Jesus only. Oh, that's a good prayer to pray, isn't it? Jesus, would you so move in my life that when I lift up my eyes, I see you only. Oh, we would be transformed. And you know, when we open up this book of Revelation, which is about Jesus, we must ensure that our reading of Revelation isn't in search of anything other than Jesus. Else we'll think we've found wisdom, but we'll have missed the source of all wisdom. We'll have missed the one we ought to fear, inviting us into the beginning of wisdom. You know, many people, they've opened up the Bible, and not just Revelation, but, you know, Daniel perhaps, and, you know, other passages in the Gospels, some things that Jesus said. They've opened up these things and they've sought wisdom, wisdom about the return of Jesus, and yet they've missed Jesus all together. I got a little uh, book that just kind of uh, distilled some of these things. It's the Rose Guide to End Times Prophecy. And, and in there, they listed some of the folks who were desperate to seek wisdom, and yet they missed Jesus altogether. See, first up, only a couple of decades after Jesus rose from the dead, false prophets in the city of Thess Thessalonica proclaimed that Jesus had already returned. This caused all sorts of worry, when it occurred to the Thessalonian believers that since they didn't recall seeing Jesus in the sky, they must have missed something significant. To this, Paul replied, 
That day will not come until the man of lawlessness is revealed. This resulted in centuries of speculation about who the man of lawlessness might be. But it apparently made the Thessalonians feel better about their situation. So that was good. A century later, in the mid-hundreds, a man named Montanus became a believer in Jesus and developed a strong interest in prophetic themes. Before long, Montanus had predicted that the new Jerusalem would show up in Papusa, a backwards parish in the province of Phrygia. You can tell it's backwards because I don't think anyone's ever heard of these places, have you? But there you go. Then Montanus began to claim that he now spoke as God, declaring, I am Father, Word, and Comforter, and I am the Lord God, all-powerful. Now, churches typically frown on members who say these things, and the congregation that Montanus attended was no exception. After his church disfellowshipped him, he started his own religious community, but the town never did play host, surprise, surprise, to the New Jerusalem. Then in the 4th century, a popular church leader named Martin of Tours declared that the Antichrist has already been born and that this ruler would rise to power in Martin's own lifetime. He was born in the 4th century. Suffice to say, his lifetime has finished. Our fourth character, a monk named Rodolphus Glaber, which apparently translated his name, you'll like this, Abel. His name means Ralph the Bold. I'm terribly sorry, I should have let that go. Eh? Uh, but he described a wave of apocalyptic worries in the decades around the year AD 1000. According to Bold Ralph, a blazing sign in the heavens had presaged a mysterious era in a monastery. Fears of impending apocalypse and tribulation deepened when a famine struck on the thousandth anniversary of the death of Jesus. Despite these many worries, the monastery was repaired, the famine passed, Ralph remained bold, and life went on. In 1534, a Dutch baker named Jan claimed that the New Jerusalem would soon appear in Munster, Germany. After a supposed series of apocalyptic visions, Jan and his followers subjugated the city of Munster. One of Jan's cohort declared himself the successor of the biblical King David and decided he'd demonstrate that by taking 16 wives for himself. In the end, the New Jerusalem did not arrive in Munster, but a rival army did. And the corpses of the apocalyptic revolutionaries were suspended above the city in iron cages. They were grisly in those days, weren't they? But apparently to this day, you can still see the cages hanging from the steeple of the church. We, we don't have that kind of thing on our church. I just want to point out that we're not that grisly. But anyhow, didn't expectations, they went desperately wrong. 300 years later, a man named Joseph Smith claimed that Jesus would establish the New Jerusalem in, of all places, Jackson County, Missouri. And in the process, launched a worldwide religious movement that denied essential biblical truths about Jesus. Still today, Mormons expect Jesus to return somewhere along the eastern outskirts of Kansas City. They're very specific, aren't they? Bless their cotton socks. Fast forward to the 20th century. And we see the same pattern again. In 1987, a retired NASA engineer published a pamphlet entitled 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. He targeted three days in September 88 as the divinely selected deadline for the return of Jesus. And he said, 
Only if the Bible is in error am I wrong. Well, the Bible wasn't in error. A few months later, the NASA engineer decided to publish a subsequent set of pamphlets suggesting that he had made a mistake and that maybe 1989 was the right date. But that date appears too to have been an error. Uh, the mathematical skills required to get a shuttle into orbit are apparently quite different from those needed to calculate the end of the world. About that time, a then-unknown leader of an obscure apocalyptic sect changed his name to David Koresh and urged his disciples to see themselves as students of the seven seals in Revelation. Koresh embraced polygamy and claimed that the end times prophecies in scripture would be fulfilled at his communal compound near Waco in Texas. I'm sure many of you, if you close your eyes, you can even imagine those scenes that you saw on news media at the time when he and 75 of his followers died after a 51-day siege. And still, in the opening decades of this century, apocalyptic predictions and expectations show no sign of slowing down. There have been doomsday expectations surrounding the year 2000. Do you remember those? That bug that apparently was going to shut down society and everything was all going to come to a crashing halt? One prediction that Jesus would return on May 21st, 2011. I don't know whether it just because it sounded neat. Or several claims that connected a convoluted Mayan prophecy about the end of time with the year 2012. Do you remember these? Yeah. Thus far, these two have proven to be misguided predictions. We could list so many more. What are you looking for? What are you longing for? What are you hoping for? What is the focus of your desire? Do you want to know hidden truths or do you want to know Jesus? The Bible says that the revealed things belong to us and to the generations that follow, but the secret things belong to God. And there's not a one of us that will change it. And yet within these pages... We have opened to us something of the secrets of our day and of days to come. And yet within every single one of them, we find Jesus loving, alive, enabling us to walk in his life. I would suggest to you, we, we would do well to look for Jesus, but in a way that doesn't have all those negative effects. One who looks at Jesus rightly sees him as the author and the perfecter of our faith, the pioneer of it and the finisher of it all. To regard our alpha and our omega in such a way will surely affect change in our lives, being changed into his character, into his beauty, into his grace and truth in our world. I want to read to you a couple of verses from Matthew's Gospel. And in chapter 9 of Matthew's Gospel, Verses 14 and 15. Disciples of John, that is John the Baptist, come to Jesus and they say to him, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast 
here Jesus is teaching us as to how we ought to respond to his first coming into the world and in the light of his second coming into the world. Fasting. I don't know whether you've ever tried it. Oh, you know, it's a time of extreme sorrow. <laughs> I'm kind of kidding. But. The deprivation of food is something that doesn't speak of celebration. Am I right? And so when these disciples come to, the, come to Jesus and ask, why aren't your disciples fasting? And Jesus shares that with them. You don't fast when the bridegroom is with you and you're celebrating. You fast when he's not there and you're waiting for him to come. I don't know whether you're people who've ever practiced fasting. Fasting is doing without food whether it be for one meal perhaps or one day or longer perhaps if, if health and circumstances allow it. But when we do so in our natural, we become very, very quickly aware of our weakness and of our need. When I go without a meal, I become very, very quickly aware that I need food. And I, I know it sounds silly, but uh, if I were to go without food for a long time, I, I would waste away. I've got a little bit to be going on, but you know. When we do something like that, we become very, very aware that we are not self-sufficient. We are not capable of existing independently. We need. We need food. We need water all the more. We need air all the more. But here Jesus is saying that a person who fasts does so recognizing that they need Jesus. They need him to come again. Can I encourage you, maybe over the time that we're opening up the scriptures in this fashion, would you perhaps consider practicing a bridegroom fast? That is the very longing for Jesus. Do without a meal from time to time. If you're healthy, your circumstances allow. Maybe fast through for a day. The practice that many of us have is that we fast from after one evening meal through to the next day's evening meal and break fast with that evening meal. It's, a, it's an excellent way to do it. And what we do within this is we're saying we are longing for you, Jesus. We recognize that we are desperately in need of you, that you are the central focus of our entire lives. And we recognize that, Jesus, you're not present in our world in the same way as when you walked upon this earth those years ago. But we recognize you are coming again. And in this place of the now of your coming and the not yet of your coming again, Jesus, we would fast and we would center our lives upon you. And we would long for you. We are living in the last days. That sounds quite apocalyptic, doesn't it? Sounds very dramatic. The reason I say that is because, as we've mentioned already, the day of Pentecost has come. Jesus, although he has returned to his Father in heaven, he said, I will ask the Father to send the Holy Spirit in my name. He said, also, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you so that you might be my witnesses. And all of this was prophesied in the Old Testament, and Joel spoke the word of God then. He said, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all people. In Acts chapter 2, we see the reality of that for the first time. And 
Peter got up to address a crowd that had gathered about people who had been absolutely transformed by the outpouring of the Spirit upon them. He said, these people aren't drunk as you suppose. It's far too early in the morning. No, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel when he said, in the last days I will pour out my Spirit. We're living in the last days. The work of Jesus on the cross makes it plain. The wonders of Pentecost, which we celebrate, please God, that we try seeking to live in, make it very, very plain. These are last days. We need to, we would do well to navigate them. We need Jesus. We need Jesus. What might Jesus instruct us as we begin on this journey? In Revelation 2 and verse 26, Jesus is speaking to one particular church, but he's speaking to us also. And he says, to him who conquers and keeps my works until the end. Until the end. Hold fast to Jesus. Hold fast to his way, to his words, to his wisdom, to his works, to his illuminating presence in your life. Hold fast to Jesus because honestly, it's oftentimes, I was going to say sometimes, but oftentimes it's a fight. It's a fight to stay true to our Savior in a world that would ask us to be false to him. It's a fight to stay true and passionate to Jesus in a world that is so passionless with regard to him and so passionate about things that are essentially worthless and passing away. It's a fight in the marketplace of ideas to say that Jesus is more than an idea. He's a lover, he's a friend, he's a saviour, he's a king. It's a fight to stay true to him, but to him who conquers, keeps to his works until the end. What were his promises? Hey, you'll be blessed. You'll see God. You'll see God. You'll see God. I want to see Jesus. time has gone and I've talked for far too long do you know there's another minister of the gospel uh, John MacArthur and he was asked you know what really excites him about heaven about the end of all things and he said you know what really excites me it's not so much the streets paved with gold or all the glittering wonder of it all he said what's the what really excites me is the absence of sin. He said, I'm really tired of sin. Oh, there's some wisdom there, hey? What are you longing for? If you feel the ache that this world is not enough, that it is passing away, that it is in desperate need of a saviour. If you feel these aches, and please God that we might, can we throw ourselves on the mercy of Jesus? Long for him this evening. Would you join me in a word of prayer?